What was D-Day? Who were the Allied forces? And why was this attack so pivotal during World War II? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. Today we're taking a look back at the heroism and bravery exhibited by the troops who risked their lives during the D-Day invasion, aka the largest air, land, and sea invasion in military history. This operation led to the liberation of France from Nazi occupation, and it was a significant turning point for Allied success in the war. So which countries were involved in the key battle? What kind of preparation went into planning the invasion? And what was at stake for the Allied nations at this point in the war? Here to help me answer all of these questions and more is Dr. John Curatola, a military historian at the Jenny Craig Institute for the Study of War and Democracy at the National World War II Museum, He's also a retired Marine Corps officer, and he joins me now. And Dr. Curatola joins me now. How's it going? I'm doing well, ma'am. Thank you. You served in the Marines for 22 years, you you said we were talking before this? Uh, yes, ma'am. Wow. You guys, you truly are the backbone of our country. So I'm happy that you're on the podcast today to talk about D-Day. I mean, this is the largest invasion force in human history. So can you just start by setting the scene during World War II as the events of D-Day unfolded? Sure. When America gets involved in the war, um, we are woefully unprepared, both in terms of, of size and scope and capability set. And the United States has to learn how to do amphibious assaults in the European theater. And this idea of doing a cross-channel invasion uh, as early as 1942 or 1943 is something that George Marshall, who's the chief of staff of the United States Army, is very interested in. However, the United States is woefully unprepared to conduct any kind of operation like that. And it's going to take us a while as a nation to build a capability set to do this cross-channel invasion that occurs in 1944. So how did we prepare for that? Um, who was in charge of creating the plan and, and what kind of preparation went into the D-Day invasion? Yeah, well, actually it happens over a period of time. It's it's funny that we're having this, this interview today because um, I'm just finishing up my latest manuscript, which addresses this particular issue. Um, so Look at that. I wouldn't say I'm psychic, but maybe I'm psychic. Yeah, the timing is quite fortuitous on, on this <laughs> one. Um, actually, what happens is, you know, as, as late as 1940, uh, the United States Army is not interested in doing amphibious assault. It is not what they plan on doing. The Marine Corps, you know, is looking for a niche, and it develops amphibious doctrine and some capability sets in the interwar years. But the Army really isn't interested in doing this. Um, however, as the war unfolds, um, before the United States gets involved, we, we see that forcible entry is going to be a requirement. We're going to need to introduce ourselves onto a landmass against a hostile shore. Um, so starting around 1940 and 1941, the Army will start looking into this idea of forcible entry. Um, and that means they got to work with the Navy. And of course, as you can imagine, the Army and Navy don't necessarily like to play well with each other <laughs> at this time. But the, but the services learn. Okay. And, and that's the point here is that uh, in the short span of a few years, the United States Army and Navy and the Army Air Forces, which is part of the Army at this time, they start to learn how to work as a joint force. 
at a time when they weren't interested in doing these things. And so what this shows here uh, for these uh, few years when America is involved in European theater is a learning process is occurring. The Americans are learning how to integrate naval surface fire support, air support, ship to shore movement, logistics, uh, and power projection, not only across the landmass, but across the fact that we have to pass through oceans, neither to get to these shores. And so America is really in a steep learning curve during this first few years before uh, the Normandy invasion actually takes place. So you said that the U.S. wasn't interested in doing amphibious missions. Why is that? Well, the U.S. Army, I should say. So, oh, um, I see. Okay. The Marine Corps is definitely interested in doing this. And as early as 1921, the Marine Corps is already looking at what at the time was called War Plan Orange, which was a, a tentative war plan for a, a tango with the Japanese in the Pacific. There's a war coming in the Pacific. We just don't know when. We just don't know how. But as early as 1921, the U.S. Marine Corps was looking at how we're going to do advanced naval bases in prosecution of a war with Japan. Mm-hmm. And from there, they're going to publish uh, some doctrinal manuals in the interwar years that the Army will grab onto and modify for their own purposes in the European theater. Now, in the war itself, the Marines are largely responsible in the Pacific theater, whereas the Army takes over the amphibious mission in the European theater. It's a notional division of labor between the two services, not to say that there aren't Army units in the Pacific doing amphibious operations. There are. As a matter of fact, the Army does more amphibious operations than the Marine Corps does in the Second World War. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but what you see here is that the Army, uh, seeing what's happening in Europe, realizes we're going to have to do uh, amphibious assault against hostile beaches. And what they do is they take a lot of the Marine Corps amphibious doctrine, they modify it for themselves. And they have to learn how to work with the Navy because all amphibious operations are inherently joint, meaning there's more than one service conducting it. So you kind of have these forces working together for the first time in history. And how did that go for them? How did they work together? Yeah, it it took a while uh, for this to kind of unfold. For me, there's an unsung hero in the Second World War. It's a guy by the name of Admiral Kent Hewitt. And uh, Kent Hewitt is in charge of the amphibious fleet in the Atlantic. And he is very proactive in reaching out to his army brethren about tactics, techniques, and procedures for amphibious assault, for loading vessels uh, for an amphibious movement, working together to provide naval fire support for army forces that they go ashore. And what you see in Torch, which is the first uh, Allied amphibious assault of the American Allied amphibious assault in November of 1942, you see these two uh, services working together. And at the time, it doesn't go real well. Uh, matter of fact, the, the, the word that they use for Torch is a hit or miss affair um, because they're fighting the Vichy French, which are not necessarily all that um, uh, formidable. However, just getting from ship to shore is problematic in 1942 because we don't have the exercises down. We don't have the maneuver down. We don't have the movements down. And so it really is the the Mediterranean is really a classroom for the United States uh, in terms of amphibious assault. 
The Mediterranean was a classroom. That, I like that. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, so then fast forward to 1944 then. How were the Allied troops faring at that time of the war and what was at stake for them? Yeah, uh, D-Day, as we know it today, was really an American idea. The British were not very interested in doing this cross-channel invasion. And the Americans really see this as the best bid for success. Why? Because it's the most direct route to greater Germany. We stage uh, forces in the UK, we come across the channel, and then we head directly east into the heart of greater Germany. The Brits were actually interested in a peripheral strategy coming at it from the Mediterranean and then pushing north. And what happens is over the course uh, of the years, the United States eventually convinces the British that this is the way to go. And the scales kind of tip in this relationship between the British and the Americans. Now, remember, the U.S. is late to coming into the war, not until December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, and then Germany declares war in the United States. So we come to the war relatively late, and so we have a lot of learning to do. And in 1942 and in 1943, the British really have uh, the know-how on how to fight the Germans. But what happens over the course of those years, as I mentioned, the classroom in the Mediterranean, that relationship starts to tip. The Americans now start to become the big brother to mm. the British, who now become the little brother. The relationship changes. Why? Not only are the Americans getting smarter, but also the Americans have more skin in the game, more men, more equipment, as the, uh, the United States gets its industrial feet underneath it. And now we're producing the ships and the airplanes and the artillery pieces in great numbers. Whereas when we first started the war, we didn't have those standing forces. So there's a relationship change. And eventually, at the uh, Tehran conference in December 1943, the cross-channel invasion is finally approved um, by both the Americans and our British counterparts. And we're going to do this notionally in May of 1944. We know it shifts until June, but initially it was supposed to be in May. Mm -hmm. um, but what you see here is this relationship between the Americans and the British starting to change over time. So you're saying that basically why this relationship changed was because our armed forces started working together as one, and that means we had more equipment, more manpower, things like that. Yeah, what you see is the United States not only becoming more tactically proficient, you know, in terms of uh, sending men into in formations and taking on the Germans, we become not only more tactically proficient, but we also have more skin in the game mm -hmm. in terms of lives and in terms of equipment sets, in terms of shipping capabilities, in terms of air power, all the things that you need to conduct modern warfare, the United States now has plenty of or is producing a significant amount of it that the Allies are using. So then how did the D-Day invasion ultimately unfold? Yeah. Uh, what happens is for the, the first six months of 1944, what you have, there was an operation called Bolero, which started as early as 1942, where the Americans are building up uh, their forces that are in uh, the UK proper. Most of this is to help with the uh, combined bomber offensive. However, we're also sending troops and formations and uh, men and material to the UK in order to build up this invasion force. If I can give you some numbers here, um, the number of troops that are in the UK 
uh, starting in 1943, it goes up to about 200,000. And then by April, it will go up to about almost 250,000 U.S. troops will be in the U.K. getting ready for this cross-channel invasion. And there's a, a joke with the British people seeing all these Americans here that the Americans are overpaid, uh, oversexed, and over here um, <laughs> as they inundate, you know, their English countryside with all these encampments and these training areas and exercises that they conduct before they do the cross-channel invasion. Um, and actually, if I may, there are two operations that are planned prior to this that most people don't know about. Um, in 1942, there was a cross-channel invasion plan gone by the name of Sledgehammer. Um, and, and George Marshall, who's the chief of staff of the Army, is very big on this particular plan. However, as I stated before, there's no way the United States can conduct this operation. Um, there's another operation that's planned in 1943 called Roundup. And the same thing occurs. We don't necessarily have... Uh, the the wherewithal to conduct that operation. Now, having said that, please understand there's other things going on in the global war. In 1941, in June, the Germans invade the Soviet Union proper. And for the rest of that year, the, the Russians are really reeling under the assault of the Wehrmacht. And Stalin is desperate to get a second front. He wants to relieve some of the pressure on his people. So what he wants is a second front from the Western allies, the Americans and the British, to help take some of that pressure off. And the Normandy invasion is part of that equation. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. So you, you said how many troops were gathered before we invaded? Um, it goes up to about... Uh, 250,000 troops, ballpark figure, that will show up in the UK. 250,000. Uh, that, that's a ton of troops. I mean, what, what yeah. do you think about and, it? And actually, yeah, and it will continue to grow as well, up to about 1.5 million. And about 5 million tons of cargo will, we will send over there. So what you're seeing here is this gradual increase as we build our forces in uh, England itself. So we're building up our forces. Was this a secret? I mean, were our enemies tipped off at all? Um, it's pretty well known that the Americans are in the UK. We're conducting the strategic bombing offensive from bases in East Anglia. The Germans are pretty much sure that there is an invasion coming across the channel. However, they're not quite sure where it's going to take place. They think the invasion is going to take place at a place called Calais, which is the shortest mm. distance between the UK and the French coast. And so that is where the Germans think the Americans are going to land. However, we are going to land, obviously, in, in the beaches at Normandy. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of disinformation that we send to the Germans to try to mask what we're doing. There's a deception plan mm. that is put in place to keep the Germans kind of off guard as to where the actual landings are going to occur. Right. So then can you walk me through the events of June 6th, 1944? Sure. Um, what happens is the... Uh, to do this amphibious assault, obviously, um, you're going to need good weather um, to, to, to conduct the, the, the ship-to-shore movement, to provide naval surface fire support. Um, and the problem is, this is the day before you have radar and or satellites and you have, um, you know, weather forecasting as we know it today. Right. Um, and so what happens on June 5th, the weather is terrible. 
Um, and so they actually postponed the invasion for 24 hours. So most of the men and equipment that are sitting on a boat somewhere or, or ready to get into a cargo aircraft and jump out of an airplane have to sit and wait for 24 hours. Um, however, uh, the weather gets a little bit better on the next day. And so Eisenhower has a, has a big decision to make. Um, and he finally says, and I quote, let's go. <laughs> it, it really comes down let's to that go. simple. That's that, that, it, it is that simple, ma'am. And so <laughs> what happens is that the U.S. forces will launch from a number of ports that are on the western half of southern England. And they're all going to come together in the central part of the, the English Channel and meet with British forces that are coming from the eastern part of South England. And they're going to meet together and do their uh, amphibious assaults. Now, the Americans will land at Omaha and Utah beaches, whereas the British will land at Gold, uh, Juneau and Sword beaches on the eastern half. Mm-hmm. So Mother Nature on the sixth was kind of like the sixth man, if we're talking it was, sports it, it, terms. She made, she made herself known. Um, and it does cause some some problems uh, getting some of the equipment ashore. For as, uh, for example, there's a number of what we call uh, uh, dual drive tanks. The, these are tanks that have propeller shafts out the back and they're supposed to f- swim ashore. Well, some of them are launched uh, 6,000 yards offshore, and the sea states are so bad that many of these tanks flounder mm. uh, and go under, taking their crews with them. Um, and so uh, it, it creates a number of problems in generating combat power ashore. As you can imagine, when a soldier or a Marine hits a shoreline, he has to build all of his combat power ashore. He may have some boats and providing fire support and some airplanes, but on the ground, he has to build all this combat power. And so getting armor ashore and getting forces ashore as quickly and as uh, coherent as possible is an important aspect of an amphibious assault. And this is where the Americans really shine. Why? Um, Because we're good at improvision. Our America, our individual soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marine are very good at thinking for themselves, uh, taking the initiative at the lower ranks to make things happen. This is kind of a, a hallmark of the United States. And while one of the reasons why we're very successful as a military, because of the initiative taken at lower ranks, as opposed to waiting for orders. Mm-hmm. Well, when we're talking about the largest amphibious assault in history, of course you think about weather, because even as a civilian, if you try to go on a boat or try to go snorkeling or anything, when it's just slightly stormy, it's it's impossible. It's, you know, it, it, it the sea is could be a very scary place. So aside from the weather, what other challenges did they have while trying to execute on this kind of attack yeah the uh the beaches there in normandy are are, are quite formidable um erwin von rommel who uh is in charge of the defenses there at the atlantic wall is really a, a, an excellent tactician uh, he has a great reputation from north africa and he's been put in charge of the defenses there in normandy and they are quite extensive uh fixed positions obstacles in the water uh landmines inter- interlocking fields of fire So the Germans are well prepared defensively for this assault. Um, And so that is probably one of the most significant challenges, again, is building that combat power while you are under fire. 
And I think if you remember the the first 20 minutes of the movie Saving Private Ryan really shows how chaotic and how difficult this assault was, specifically along the beaches of Omaha, where the Germans really put up a, a, a stiff defense. And so the fact that the Germans were well prepared, well fortified and well armed really made this even more difficult when you throw on the weather problems that these soldiers had to deal with. Right. And, you know, we overcame it. And I know I know you mentioned we were preparing for this for a while. But what do you think made this invasion so successful? Well, one of the things that makes the U.S. military so successful um, is the fact that we are masters of combined arms integration. Okay, what do I mean by that? Um, That means integration of artillery, aviation, naval power, ground power, all working together in a synergy to make a mission happen. Mm -hmm. And what you saw here in Normandy is really the, the maturation of the Americans learning how to fight as a joint force. Uh, and to, to kind of e- exemplify this for you, for weeks before the Americans even land, and the Brits too, I'm just talking about the Americans, but the Brits as well, um, there's an entire air campaign that is directed against the French, the existing French and German transportation networks. That's important because we don't want the Germans to be able to move their forces and the reserves from one location to another. And so for weeks before the Americans even land, We're going to make northern France, a term that they use as a railroad desert. Uh, We're going to knock out all the transportation nodes so they can't move their forces around uh, and reinforce uh, what they have on on the the ground. Another thing that happens is uh, the United States Army Air Forces with both medium bombers and heavy bombers will also uh, hit the beaches themselves just before D-Day to kind of help soften them up. Now, some are more accurate than others in terms of actually letting their bombs drop. But what you're seeing here is the fact that you have an air and air effort that is helping prepare the battlefield for the introduction of ground forces. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the United States Navy is parking battleships off the coast of the Normandy Beach and firing 16-inch shells into these German formations. So you have air, naval, and ground forces all working together towards a a unified goal. That makes a difference. Right. And I was reading, and correct me if this number's wrong, but I was reading that some 400,000 German troops were lost. Um, Yeah, I think that number sounds about right. Um, I'd have to to check your math on it. But yeah, it sounds about right. The, uh, The German troops that are there are obviously... Uh, well uh, positioned to repulse this uh, this invasion. But by this time of the war, again, the Americans have learned how to do ship to shore movement, mm-hmm. how to do combined arms integration. And oh, by the way, uh, you have to break out of this toehold that you make. And they've learned how to introduce logistics, how to provide combat power so troops can continue inland. This is an important lesson the Americans learned. And again, we're very good at it and we're very good at it today. Well, just to expand on that, you say it seems like we kind of learned some things during that that they probably carried on throughout the years and the development of the U.S. military. Do you think um, the events of D-Day really did pave the way for other important military uh, attacks? And how do you think that happened? Yeah, uh, absolutely. What, What most people don't realize is there's another invasion of France two months later. Um, there is a, a, an invasion called Dragoon. It was initially initially called Anvil, but it's called Dragoon. And the Americans will invade southern France and push up 
and meet up with 21st Army Command um, in, in France proper. And this way we have another port to bring in supplies and manpower as we push into Germany. And the Dragoon invasion goes exceptionally well because we take a lot of the lessons learned from Normandy and we apply them in Dragoon. Uh, again, combined arms integration, uh, naval and air and surface forces working together towards uh, a sustained effort. Yeah, two months later seems like a quick turnaround after such a massive invasion, doesn't it? It is. It is. Um, and there's a lot of tension between the Americans and the British about this particular invasion, because, again, the British are wedded to a Mediterranean strategy where they want to come up um, through basically the Balkans and push up that way, where the Americans are dead set against that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Americans want to take the French route because they see it as the most direct route. So what was the aftermath of Normandy? Yeah. Um, what happens is that, that we establish our toehold there, uh, obviously, on, on June 6th and uh, through the 8th. Um, but what happens is the Americans run into the Bocage, which is, um, if you've ever been to Normandy, there are these big, thick hedgerows um, that are very difficult to maneuver through. And so they really aid the defense in terms of uh, combat options. And so the the Americans have to fight their way through these hedgerows to eventually break out. And it takes a while. Um, The Americans thought they were going to take, you know, uh, Shoreborg and and some of these objectives relatively quickly. And it takes significantly longer than what they thought because of the defenses that are are available to the Germans and the terrain that's there. And so it isn't until, you know, mid to late June that the Americans really start to break out uh, from the Normandy toehold. And then once they do that, they really are able to, to make some, um, some uh, I'll call it broken field uh, traction in, in moving east towards greater Germany. But it takes a few weeks. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. I do have to ask you this question, and I meant to ask this earlier, but D-Day, I, there are so people think that it stands for designated day, decision day, doomsday, but the D in D-Day stands for day, right? Is that true? Yeah, it stands for nothing. <laughs> Let me give you an example for staff functioning. And having you know been a, a staff officer in a number of my tours, uh, what you're doing is it's, it's just there to designate a given 24-hour period so everybody's on the same sheet of music for a given operation. It's just like saying H-hour. H-hour is the hour you're supposed to land. D-Day is the day the operation is occurring. Hmm. Seems a little so redundant. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but if, as a staff officer, if I'm talking to you about Normandy uh, and I say, hey, on D-Day, we're going to do this. You know I'm talking about June 5th. And of course, it shifts to June 6th. But but it puts everybody on the same sheet of music. It, it's All it is is a, is a staff functioning tool. I see. I see. That's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, it, it sounds a little redundant, but the way you explain it, it makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Curvatorola, what, last question for you. What do you think is the most important thing for people to remember when they think back to the bravery showcased by the soldiers on D-Day? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I always look at it from a standpoint of the individual soldier um, or, or sailor uh, there who's going ashore. Uh, in Normandy, um, and think about what's going through their mind um, and the fact that you don't know if you're coming home. Mm -hmm. And many of these men didn't come home. And they fought in a war to rid the world of fascism, and they knew that the world was depending upon them. Um, And I think that speaks to the American spirit. Um, I think it speaks to what we as Americans 
look to as safeguards of democracy and human rights. Um, and these men felt it. They understood what was going on. And Eisenhower, as a supreme Allied commander, made sure they understood what they were doing. He did. He made sure they knew what was at stake. And this had this not gone well, there was no alternative plan. This was the bid for success for the Americans. Um, and so it, it's a testament to these men that they came up against some very difficult circumstances and still persevered. Why? Because that's what American soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines do. They overcome, they adapt. Um, and they continue to do that today. Having served in the Marine Corps for 22 years, I was constantly impressed by the initiative shown um, of my Marines on a daily basis. And I taught Army officers for the past 15 years. Um, and I saw the same thing with them. And so that spirit endures today. Most military professionals know this history. Most of the officers know this history. And, and, and they use it as a building block to be even better to serve this nation. Mm -hmm. I, I lied to you. I said last question, but I actually have one more because I want to follow up on something that you said. If we did not have the success that we did during this invasion in World War II, how do you think the war would have been different? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, it certainly would have changed the calculus um, significantly. I think what might have happened, and this is only speculation on my part, right. uh, the war may have dragged on uh, in Europe, at least, um, into possibly 1946. Um, there might have been some kind of negotiated settlement uh, with Hitler. And because you can think that the Russians are... By 1944, the Russians kind of have their feet underneath them, and they're now starting to push west a little bit. Um, but that doesn't mean that this victory is, is at all secure. Um, and, of course, keep in mind, the Americans are still fighting the Japanese. There's another war going on. And so I think it significantly would have altered our courses of action available to us. Um, and the war might have very well ended up very differently Um had D-Day not succeeded. Yeah, well, back to your point earlier, our our soldiers and our, our military are some of the best in the, the world. So uh, the fact that we were able to execute this mission at such a high level and the way that we're able to look back on it today is truly spectacular. Dr. Curatola, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it and enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks for coming thank on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you having me on. anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways about D-Day. Number one, D-Day was an important exhibition of synergy among the different branches of the U.S. military. It really was a showcase of their air, naval, and ground forces all working together for a unified mission. Number two, there were a lot of challenges the Allied forces had to overcome in order for the invasion to be a success. For example, the weather that delayed the invasion and was still a factor that tested the strength of the armed forces. And not only that, Normandy's beach was a formidable one. Germany was well prepared, armed with a strong defense, making them a tough enemy to overcome. And number three, some of the values that made the armed forces in the 1940s so successful still run through our military today. American bravery and the ability to adapt are still present, making us powerful in fighting for democracy and mankind. 
Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on D-Day. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed? Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.